Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 43rd episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Tuesday, the 17th of December, 2013, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show has been brought to you by the generous donation of Christopher D. Cheers, Christopher. If you too would like to get all the ladies like Christopher does, why not click on the donate button on the podcast website? It works, I tell you. Failing that, you can follow the show on Twitter and Facebook. This week, our guest is David Blacker. David is a professor of philosophy of education and legal studies at the University of Delaware. His academic background is in the history of philosophy, and his writings pursue insights from that tradition within the context of contemporary education problems. His essays have appeared in the monthly review magazine, and he has just released an excellent new book, which I finished today, called The Falling Rate of Learning and the Neoliberal Endgame, which looks at how the educational world is being affected by Marx's law of the tendential fall in the rate of profit. Let's have a listen to see what David has to say. So David, you open your book with a Noam Chomsky quote, Capitalism is a suicide pact. Yeah, well, I guess we can't get much pithier than that as far as a general uh, uh, mood and ambiance for, for the book. And as you ask me that, I'm realizing that there is quite a lot uh, packed in to that quote. And I suppose the first thing that comes to my mind in the context of my analysis and generally has to do with uh, large-scale externalities of capitalist production, the sort of blowback, I guess, if you will, that we're only now, I think, beginning to realize in terms of uh, climate change and also in terms of so-called energy descent scenarios that I think, you know, certainly we could have said all along from the point of view of individual workers whose bodies literally are depleted and poisoned and broken by capitalism in the sort of old uh, classical sense of, of exploitation, that Capitalism is uh, almost uh, suicidal, uh, murderous, I suppose, uh, along along with, uh, for them, you know, as individuals. But I think we're only now collectively starting to understand through the our, our greater awareness of the urgency of climate change, uh, energy uh, descent, and what I'm identifying as these large-scale externalities of capitalist production. We're only now starting to understand that we're strapped into a kind of suicide vest with this system, that I'm not sure any of us, even on the left, as much as we critique and so on, have a really strong idea of how to defuse that uh, suicide vest. You know, I apologize for the image, but I, I, I think that's the situation we're in when we think long term and we think globally. One of the other quotes I have, uh, someone I rely on a little bit throughout, is not a Marxist uh, by any stretch, uh, Jeremy Grantham, who's a financial analyst uh, that has some following. And he's sort of an arch capitalist. He's made a fortune as an investment manager and runs an investment fund. Grantham says very forthrightly that, and this is sort of from, in a way, an arch capitalist who's worried about climate change and 
agriculture and, and uh, energy and, and so on, that this is capitalism's Achilles heel, is the inability to think long term you know, concerning these sort of arch externalities. And so my, that's my first take when, when I consider the Chomsky quote. Given the title of your book, I suppose we need to talk about Marx's law of the tendential fall in the rate of profit. This is the idea that as capitalism develops, the ratio between the amount of capital spent on wages versus machinery tends to grow and wages make up a smaller and smaller proportion of the money invested in production. A good example of this would be maybe a, a surgeon who used to carry all the tools of his trade around in a bag, but now he needs hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment and an operating theatre to do his work. And since all the profit comes from the exploitation of the human labour, the amount of profit as a percentage of the capital outlay has a tendency to fall and diminish over the long haul. What was it about this law that interests you so much? A few things. One thing that struck me, in fact, if I had to, while we're talking about aphorisms here a little bit, if I had to identify an insight or quote that, that really sort of set me on the path to conceiving of this project, it was a, a quote that I first encountered through the German essayist, Hans Magnus Enzenberger, and he was talking about Africa. He said uh, in a book in the 90s, a collection of essays, and he said, well, the experience of Africa has shown that there's only one thing worse than being exploited by the multinationals, and that's not being exploited by them. And I realized later that he was actually paraphrasing Joan Robinson, the British economist, around, I guess, 1950s, World War II. It's kind of a hard quote to pin down, but she uh, uh, is widely, widely reputed, uh, essentially, to have said, we've learned the only thing worse than being exploited by the capitalists is not being exploited by them. And it struck me that there's a, a conception, uh, a sort of reigning conception when I, in education, of education under capitalism, is that it's an exploitative system, you know, that education is sort of part of the loop of production, part of the value adding process, you know, adding value to labor and so on. And the critique of education under capitalism is a critique of those exploitative elements, you know, that, that we shouldn't be treated to, I'm a philosopher, so putting it in Kantian terms, we shouldn't be treated as means to an end, you know, the end being capitalist accumulation and education. There's something demeaning and limiting about uh, simply wiring our education systems exclusively into the vocational human capital needs of, of production. And so the critique of education is sort of an attempt to this traditional Marxist critique in education is uh, sort of advocates breaking out of that sphere, uh, sort of asserting our humanity over and against this degrading status of being mere means toward capital, uh, capitalist production. But what struck me is that, that there's actually a more fearful possibility and this thought occasioned by the economic uh, crisis, which in, in some ways woke me, I think, from some dogmatic uh, slumbers, is that, you know, maybe uh, that's not the worst possibility out there <laughs> to be exploited. Um, and I thought of the Enzenberger and Robinson uh, quotes that it struck me that perhaps with chronic unemployment, and especially when we look at places like uh, Greece and Spain as sort of a leading edge of youth unemployment, what is it in the 60% range now or something there, where there's the worst possibility than being exploited by the capitalist is in, in fact not being exploited by them in, in the sense of being placed completely outside the loop of production itself and that precarity and so on, especially if we think globally in terms of regions like Africa and, and elsewhere being placed wholly outside that loop of production. And my fear here 
is that this chronic unemployment is almost a euphemism, a sort of an under, understatement for a process that's been set in place in which more and more, both domestically in terms of uh, Europe and the United States, internally in terms of internal populations, more and more people are being rendered formally useless outside the, the scope of production. You know, we used to talk of the surplus army of labor in Marx, but I think that army has become so much more reserved than uh, surplus anymore. They're more reserved than anything else. They're so far on the sidelines, they're not called into action much, if at any, any time uh, anymore. And so my thought was that, you know, surely this process, which I think can be traceable back to these general sort of tectonic movements that are occasioned by what Marx identified as the most important law of political economy, this tendency of the rate of profit to fall, which I clumsily abbreviate throughout the book as TRPF, but there's no pretty way to keep repeating that, <laughs> um, that, that, that these processes have taken us to uh, an era that you might be able to term as post-exploitation, by which I mean not that there's not exploitation going on. Of course, there's lots and continuing and exacerbating in certain areas, especially globally, but that this is the defining characteristic of our age. This is what you call the transition from abuse to neglect. Yeah, exactly. Abuse from neglect. So abuse would be the correlative abuse would be the exploitation mode and neglect would be eh, you're not even worth exploiting anymore. You're not even valuable enough to exploit. You're just sort of this excess, this burden, this leftover residuum that really uh, what do you do with leftover uh, disposable residuum, otherwise known as garbage? Well, you eliminate it. Right. And so I, I discuss what I think is the specter of eliminationism, which in a way, and this is easy maybe for people to take in a, uh, uh, wrongly, but so, so please understand this in context where capitalist exploitation almost seems quaint, almost seems like the good old days by comparison. You know, would that I could find someone to exploit me, <laughs> you know, and, and I think if you're a young person in Greece or Spain or wherever uh, right now, that's quite understandable, that sentiment. And so this what I call eliminationism. And by the way, I take that term from a very, very dark context. It's from the context of Holocaust scholarship, where there were different camps in the Nazi hierarchy about the so-called Jewish problem, right, what to do. And there was one camp, which you know, it's one of these where the uh, it gives you a good illustration of a horrifically narrowed parameter of discourse where the sort of progressive side wanted to just work people to death, you know, and the eliminationist side uh, wanted simply to exterminate and, and kill everyone. That side won out, and that's Daniel Jonah Goldhagen used this term, eliminationism. So that, that that's where the term comes from. But I, I think we're in an age that's characterized not by exploitation, but is, is a growing world in which eliminationism, that is that transition from abuse to neglect, is actually what's going on. And so I'm a philosopher focusing on education problems in this book, and it seemed to me that if eliminationism is characteristic of our current situation, then this is bound to, uh, we're bound to see those effects in education systems. And I think, uh, well, something I'm sure we'll talk about more of that, this sort of whole uh, neoliberal uh, sort of policy initiatives directed toward educational institutions are actually the deepest explanation available is that they are reflections of this process of elimination. And so that is ultimately itself tied up with uh, Marx's tendency of the, uh, the rate of profit to fall. And this is why I call the book The Falling Rate of Learning, sort of to emphasize that. 
this process is very much to be seen in its uh, sort of symptomatology that we can approach in educational institutions, which, and I'm sure you could write the same book about healthcare or other institutions as well. Just to drill a, a little bit into the falling rate of profit, the reason it creates this reserve army or these people who are no longer needed to be exploited in the Western countries is that because of the falling rates of profits, the multinationals shifted production to, say, the Far East. And now the working class that was required in cities like Detroit are no longer needed in those cities. Right. So that the globalization process is itself a symptom of an of a ever more desperate you know, attempt to chase a smaller and smaller profit margin. Exactly. And so this precariat, as you call them, this is the structure that we are beginning to see forming in a lot of Western countries where you have uh, an underclass that is not even expected to ever achieve employment. Exactly. The kind of uh, permanent lumpen proletariat, I guess, if you want to use Marxist terminology. So in the book, you quote the creator of the television series, The Wire, David Simon, on the effects of this on the people of the city of Baltimore. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I see this as one, one of these effects domestically, and, and I think one could find the same phenomena in, in European uh, cities uh, as well, certainly, where we have a group in which there really is no longer the expectation, that despite some of the official rhetoric about staying in school and, and so on, there really is not a, uh, a general expectation that, that, that these individuals will be exploitable. And this is what policy scholar Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow, because in the United States, specifically uh, chronically or acutely observable with African-American populations in the cities, for example, like the Baltimore of, of the water. And we see this reflected in the education system where uh, there are huge numbers of dropouts. And in fact, a certain percentage of dropouts have long been built into American education systems where, you know, something like 50 percent students dropping out before normal, you know, what would be graduation points here. You know, if, if everyone actually showed up to school in these cities that was supposed to be there officially, they wouldn't know what to do. You know, they wouldn't be able to handle it. So there's sort of a, uh, a systemic uh, acceptance of a sort of diminishing serviceability of growing segments of the population. And I think what this translates into is a situation in which both in education systems, the schools both internally become less, you know, what I would want to say, I think what most of us would want to say as educational and become more disciplinary apparatuses uh, for surveillance, a kind of warehousing matrix of structures becomes prevalent. It sort of becomes a holding sort of zone. And uh, some have spoken of even more directly as, as being a pipeline to prison, sort of school to prison pipeline, which has been much talked about, where, where this is what we see. And the, these are populations then that are locked out of the formal economy. And into what anthropologists will call the informal economy, right? Sort of sounds like a, a, a very euphemistic term, but the informal economy in this context means usually means criminality of some kind. So into drugs, prostitution, etc. Yeah, in the terms of the wire, since you mentioned the, the wire, you know, the corner, the boys on the corner, that kind of thing. Um, there are other things, too, that aren't necessarily criminality, but although it might be criminality technically, like peddling, you know, wares or, or they're scavenging, too. There's a lot of, there's a sort of a, an economy of, of salvage that that takes place as well. You know, for example, that's not you know illegal, but I think the illegal activity is probably where most of the money is. When we talk of such large scale forces as the 
falling rate of profit washing through the capitalist system and having its way with the economies of the world. What role is there for agency in fighting against such kind of monolithic tendencies? Well, that's a big question, and I would want to own up to one thing that's certainly characteristic, I think, of Marx himself and, and our, our tradition. You know, I'll own that tradition, which is that we're, we're long on diagnosis, short on cure, right? So, you know, what, what, what can we do? Well, first of all, I would want to say one more thing on the tendency of the rate of profit to fall that I think informs that question, which is that I think it's often misunderstood. You know, Marx himself even though he identified it as the most important law of political economy, he also says explicitly that it's not going to, by itself, the falling rate of profit will not cause the collapse of capitalism. Well, the reason for this is that it generates all these counterforces. So globalization itself is a, is a counterforce. Also, more recently, credit bubbles you know, uh, and debt uh, are, are counterforces that are brought to bear to sort of forestall this process or in a reaction to its sort of gravitational pull. Oftentimes, the counterforces, the symptoms, are more powerful seeming than the, than the gravitational pull itself. In the book, I liken it to kind of a black hole in physics, where if you study black holes, no one actually kind of by definition, you don't see the black hole directly. You, know, you, you essentially infer its presence by its effects on surrounding objects. And I think now Andrew Kleiman and others, I, I love the charts, you know, he'll, he'll be able to produce uh, wonderful charts that'll, that'll show this, although, and I, I'm happy to have those around, although I'm a little less sanguine than some of the economists are about how convincing their, their data are, sort of shifting sands of this economic data. But I think we mostly see the tendency in the effects on surrounding bodies. In, in these counterforces, globalization and so on, and what I'm calling this uh, eliminationist mode. And so that's what I think people are struggling against in their everyday lives. Those are sort of the proximal causes of their misery. You know, the, when a factory closes or when, when debt burdens skyrocket for individuals and sovereign debt for, for nations and communities and so on. These are the things that they struggle with. And, and, and the, so all these proximate causes, but ultimately traceable back. So, so if this is the situation in which we're struggling uh, in our everyday lives against these sort of proximal causes, that's the situation. And sort of we find ourselves struggling against those things. I think the question of agency becomes very difficult because really we're quite preoccupied with these proximal causes and have very little ability either to conceptualize, understand, let alone uh, direct or touch the, the root causes that are, that are really, really motoring things. And when I'm asked, well, the inevitable question, well, what can we do about it? It's a very difficult question because it's quite understandable on the one hand. Before we get into it, let's talk a little bit about the relationship, the causality between, say, the base and the superstructure. By that, I mean between the economic system and on top of the economic system, its legal and educational and cultural institutional apparatus and how they interact and what is the role, say, for agency and what is the deterministic nature of, of that combined pair. Marx is often, you know, from the right, of course, and I discuss these these matters in the in the book too at more length. But from the right, of course, Marx and and my tradition is the philosophical tradition, where a lot of these the discussions are sort of taking place on this plane, a very unsatisfactory plane to the economists out there, I think. But a lot of the, the you know so-called refutation of Marx consists in 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 elucidating and this allegedly unacceptably deterministic picture, right? That it's 
it's structuralist and that's sort of the bad marks you know the structuralist marks or maybe Engels even worse you know the evil more structuralist twin which is allegedly more deterministic and problem with that is it robs us of agency and, and we all know that human beings have agency so ipso facto any picture of the world that denies human beings agency is therefore flawed and must be rejected well I reject that picture as an unjustified uh, assumption I think there are far too facile notions of agency that are floating around the left and, and elsewhere, which seem to assume that if, uh, in the book I actually, uh, perhaps this is a bit nasty, but I think it needs to be addressed. I call it a reverse Tinkerbell fallacy. You know, where Tinkerbell is like, if you sort of uh, you know, want it to happen, it wills. The reverse of this uh, in, in terms of agency is that the argument seems to often proceed in this way. Your analysis you've just presented, you know, I'm presenting a hypothetical uh, critique here of my critique. Your analysis you presented is overly deterministic. That makes me feel really bad about myself in the sense that I can't figure out what to do now. Therefore, it's wrong. <laughs> it's simply unacceptable to me. It's unacceptable to me on a psychological basis, right? I can't accept it because it has these psychological effects. I don't think that that has much weight to it, actually. Maybe it is just as true that you're stuck in a deterministic situation, and maybe your agency can't really triumph. You know, Spinoza says, one of my favorite philosophers, says that uh, free will is simply an illusion caused by the ignorance of the causes of our actions. And I think something like that is operating here. You know, age-old questions of free will versus determinism. And uh, many of us, I think, have just sort of sided uncritically on the free will side of the equation in this grand unresolved debate. And now we can have that debate, and, and, I, and I do think there is room for a conception of agency and so on. But I'm not willing to give the game to those who simply want it to be there a priori or, or think that it simply must be there, sort of in an obvious sense. The collective version of this question has to do maybe with the base superstructure analysis. So we think of different institutions. Are they just kind of marionettes or puppets that are whose strings are being pulled by the base, you know, the economic movements? So you mentioned, of course, education, art, law, you know, all these areas, science itself, perhaps, you know, all these areas of, of society. And I, I think what I subscribe to, and I actually, my previous book is actually about this, where I, I argue for a particular notion of institutional, what I'm calling institutional autonomy, which I think fits within this tradition. I think I have a fairly middle of the road position on this. I think on the large scale, matters are actually more deterministic than are often given uh, credence to. But there is institutional autonomy within particular institutions. So if we look at education, there are lots of things going on in education that can't be simply traced back in any simple sense to uh, economic imperatives, you know, as if there's an economic drill sergeant you know, who's giving specific orders about every curriculum initiative, every policy directive, uh, and so on. So that, that's clearly not the case. And I think there are instances in which the so-called the alleged superstructure can then kind of wrap around dialectically and operate on the base a grand example not in grand in the good sense but just in the large-scale sense would be where the political say under uh, Nazism itself obviously can have huge effects on the economy but that's the realm of political ideology you know, sort of turning around and, and affecting uh, economic production and, and causing war and militarism and and the like. These all have uh, effects, even though 
we can also analyze going the other way, war and imperialism and militarism and so on, having root causes in capitalist production as well. It's dialectical. And, uh, you know, uh, it's not determined in the sense of micromanaged, but I think in the long run, it's determined in terms of, you might say, long wave cycles, thinking about someone like Ernest Mandel. So in the long run, let me put it this way. The longer the run in terms of historically, I mean, in terms of in temporal terms, the longer the run, the more deterministic I get. But in the shorter term, I think we observe higher degrees of institutional autonomy, even though that autonomy tends to bend as the time horizon expands. As you say in the book, it's it's no surprise that communist economies housed communist schools and capitalist economies produced capitalist schools. This is the base determining the superstructure. Yeah, exactly. And and there are, even though there are islands of difference, so for example, I visited uh, somewhat recently visited Summerhill School, A.S. Neal School, which I assume is probably known by, by people generally. Very much free schooling, kind of however you want to describe it, R.D. Lang, anarchist, uh, freedom, uh, and so on. Uh, very much uh, an, uh, an example of a kind of limited institutional autonomy, where I, I, it's hard for me to see, you know, it's an elite school, wealthy kids go there, it's high, it's expensive, you know, and so on. But I think a uh, an isolated school like that, their pedagogical philosophy at least, uh, it's hard for me to see that as in, in any simple sense tied into the needs of capitalist production. But it's not exactly scalable, you know, it's small scale. And, and we have these little outgrowths of, of autonomy, little eddies, you know, little uh, islands where something different might might be able to happen. Given the political structure, those are more or less possible. I don't think there are a lot of those under in Hitler's Germany, you know. Uh, so so these these things are possible, and so it's important to analyze these. And there, there are initiatives and movements and autonomy that's exercised by teachers in schools through their unions in the states and, and, and by other means. And sometimes, as I analyze in one of the chapters in the book, students themselves through asserting their rights. In the United States, you know, that's that's an interesting example for us that I don't think is as prominent in, in the UK, which is uh, we have a, a very strong conception of students' rights. You know, they have constitutional rights, so free speech and so on. And now, maybe I can be corrected on this, but when I've, I've given some talks in, in uh, England and Scotland on this subject, and people are usually puzzled by the notion of students' rights there. You know, so what are you talking about? Oh, you Americans, you know, so uh, rights-oriented, you know, and so on. But we have this conception of students' rights, which I think is an, is an example of a certain type of autonomous outgrowth, um, though ultimately in the long run, as I argue, is being disciplined now as the needs of capital and almost the desperation of elites grows more acute. So, uh, you know, to me, a careful, complicated analysis, and this is what makes things intellectually interesting, is that one has to account for both the deterministic elements, the elements that are determined, and also the assertions of autonomy, of institutional autonomy. Newtonian determinism says that the universe is a clock. A gigantic clock that's wound up at the beginning of time. And it's been ticking ever since according to Newton's laws of motion. So, what you're going to eat 10 years from now, on January 1st, has already been fixed. It's already known using Newton's laws of motion. Einstein believed in that. Einstein was a determinist. Well, does that mean that a murderer, this horrible mass murderer, isn't really guilty of his works because it was already preordained billions of years ago? Einstein said, well, yeah, in some sense that's true. 
even mass murderers, were predetermined. But, he said, they should still be placed in jail. Heisenberg then comes along and proposes the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and says, nonsense. There's uncertainty. You don't know where the electron is. It could be here, here, or many places simultaneously. This, of course, Einstein hated because he said God doesn't play dice with the universe. Well, hey, get used to it. Einstein was wrong. God does play dice. Every time we look at an electron, it moves. There's uncertainty with regards to the position of the electron. So what does that mean for free will? It means in some sense we do have some kind of free will. No one can determine your future events given your past history. There's always the wild card. There's always the possibility of uncertainty in whatever we do. I was wondering if you could tell us about the historical origins of universal primary and secondary education. How did it all come about? Well, let me give you a one-word example, capitalism. <laughs> you know, That's your pithy opener. Yeah, that's my pithy opener. Even pithier than Chomsky. It's one word. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, not actually, it's not a grand historical coincidence that universal public education arises essentially along with industrial capitalism. You know, it's not just cosmic chance that those two things arise together. And it's actually a great illustration kind of on a large canvas of what we were just talking about. In the United States, at least, we, we see the rise of, of universal schooling, and along with it, it's sort of other aspect, the other side of the same coin, which is compulsory education, you know, to make sure that children are in fact included into the promise of, of universal education. We see the rise, especially in the 19th century in the United States, and it very conspicuously arises as an imperative around the areas where capitalist production is really getting going, industrial production, in mill areas in Massachusetts, for example. Massachusetts is sort of ground zero for universal education in the United States. Now, that imperative has deeper roots, for example, religious roots. In the States, for example, the oldest you could call it a universal education law or kind of a proto-universal education law, is from 1647, Massachusetts. And it has the wonderful name, I think it's my favorite name of any law ever, called Ye Old Deluder Satan Act. <laughs> 1647, Colonial Massachusetts. And it required towns of uh, 50 families or more to set up uh, primary schools for literacy, basically. And interestingly, those had religious impulses. And the idea was, you know, with, the, with Protestants, we're dealing with these East Anglian Puritan types, right, in colonial Massachusetts. And the, so arch Protestants, part of their belief system was that everyone, uh, kind of voluntarism as far as religious expression goes, right, so, or, or religious belief, where the idea is that, you know, to get away from the influence of priests and so on, there's a personal imperative for everyone to be able to read the Bible for themselves you know, and become saved through, through baptism, so to, to be saved by their own lights. So it's very important that you voluntarily accept, and that implies that you are able to make the decisions, and you need access to the Bible yourself. And so there's that, and that's, that's why it's called deluder Satan, because the idea is that through education, through literacy, so since you can have access to the Bible, you know, the primary text, you can then uh, rid yourself of Satan's delusions. And so anyway, there, there are pre-economic, pre-capitalist imperatives that get going toward universal education, I think. But it really, the scheme 
the policy scheme of universal education really gets going along with the erection of factories and industrial production in Massachusetts. And so we have these, these early areas. And they, they, they struggled quite a bit to convert this primarily agrarian society, you know, just like in England, probably a, a somewhat a generation or two before this, to convert a primarily agrarian, you know, agricultural, more scattered population into suitable factory workers, where you have to learn to do things like show up on time according to a clock. Guess what? Just like schools. You have to learn to sit for a long time, you know, just like a factory. You have to learn to take direction from a central authority, teacher or manager, right, in a sort of a classroom. You know, we, you have to show up sober. That actually was a big issue. Sounds funny to us now, but apparently you read the, the memoirs and there's some historians who've done nice work on this. These early capitalists were absolutely driven mad by workers showing up not on time and drunk, you know. <laughs> these things we take for granted, but you can see easily these are how nicely schools in the, the so-called hidden curriculum of schools, right? A, apart from the formal curriculum of reading, writing, and arithmetic, and so on, these things that you're learning in schools that are not part of the formal lessons, you know, like waiting your turn, showing up on time, not being drunk, you know, all this kind of stuff. How much easier it makes on the capitalists when they have this nice workforce, who's a, and, and also just basic literacy too, which adds value to workers and so on. You have this workforce that's much more cleaned up for you, you know, when it comes time to employ them when they're 13 or whatever. If we're talking about the 19th century, so we have these waves of of compulsory education in the United States. The secondary education becomes compulsory around the turn of the 20th century, so around 1900, give or take. And so it, it gradually increases. And I think now we're probably in a wave where higher education seems almost de rigueur, you know, and, and needed, though interestingly has these effects of, of debt and being privatized and not really fully provided by the state, though partially provided. How did the liberal idealism around education work as well with respect to the capitalist system? Yeah, and that's a, gr a great question. I someone like actually Michel Foucault is, is very helpful here because and one thing Foucault traces as far as, say, prison reform and, and his book on prisons, Discipline and Punish, is you could be very well read as a book on education as well, or schools, I should say. The process is very similar, where there's, there's this sort of the noise in those eras is of a humanitarian rhetoric. In the case of education, and specifically with regard to compulsory education, it's kind of a save the children rhetoric, right? We must save them from, from over-exploitation by parents on farms and also in industrial production. So we in the United States, we have the specter of five-year-olds being working in coal mines, right, because they, they're small and they can find little veins of coal that, that the adults can't find. And so we have these horror stories from a humanitarian perspective. And so the advance of, of universal education, compulsory education, it was, was really, I don't think you really had the snidely whiplash in a top hat, you know, saying, come to these schools so we can exploit you. You know, the, the rhetoric was more a rhetoric of, of a humanitarian rhetoric of a more humane world for children, of child safety and child welfare and the rest of it. And, I'm, and what's complicated, though, is I think it's inappropriate to simply have and actually not dialectical from within a Marxist framework to view this in a jaded way, you know, as a, in a purely cynical way. There, there were humanitarian elements. There were children being abused, you know, essentially. And, and so it's dialectical, right? But I think we see this phenomenon very often where 
there's a, a certain rhetorical gloss, and this is where I guess I'm a kind of base superstructure uh, determinist to a, to a large extent, where I think the ideology is more or less, in general, not in any simple sense, but in general, in the long run, kind of being played by the uh, economic forces. And so this ide ide ideology of uh, saving children and, and so on, and expand, thereby expanding compulsory education and viewing ed the expansion of education as a human right is both warranted morally, I think, actually is, and also kind of a conspiracy on the part of the capitalists. <laughs> you know, to me, that's the tricky bit, right? It's both those things at the same time. What are the current changes being brought into the education systems in the West, primarily in the U.S.? Yeah, in the U.S., although I think I'd add certainly England, and I can't speak to Ireland, you know, and I think Scotland seems a little more, a little softer to me. Uh, so I, maybe England especially, which in some ways is even more advanced along these lines in the U.S. But the current changes, I think, could be described, if, if we want to go to a one word there, it would be neoliberalism, you know, these sort of neoliberal changes where we have marketization, Right, where everything's to be privatized, where there's privatization, which I see as a kind of neo-enclosure movement, you know, hearkening back to the historical period of enclosures, where you essentially just fence off what was before common grazing land, you know, public land, that kind of thing, the commons, literally speaking, where that is fenced off by elites, simple, really just simple theft and strong arm tactics of simply calling a stretch of what was common land mine now or private property. So a neo-enclosure where the private property here is not physical land, although sometimes it can be like if you have a park or a museum being sold off, but it's more um, institutional uh, enclosure. That's why a neo-enclosure. So public education, uh, you can add public health in the states at least, including Obamacare. But in education, um, we have some of the last truly public institutions in the United States experiencing a huge, huge momentum toward privatization and so-called venture philanthropy, according to foundations like uh, Gates of Bill Gates, Microsoft fame, Gates Foundation, and other foundations who essentially, when you boil it down, they have a privatization agenda on the argument that you know markets make everything better, so therefore let's let's essentially put education into a market and by the way that includes smashing teachers unions and decreasing the power of teachers and so on who just stand in the way if we can just in introduce some of those magical market invisible hand incentives into education that'll be a, a cure-all so that's one thing but what i see and to me the more what's even more frightening uh, the official rhetoric of such initiatives that as called no child left behind which are our federal policy initiatives here and race to the top, which are affectionately known now by educators as no child left, you know, simply, and race to nowhere, you know, they all are sort of, they dangle, the idea is kind of introducing market logic where you dangle monetary incentives for performance based on standardized testing and so on. The No Child Left Behind initiative, which now is almost 15 years old, started in like 2001, is almost a perfect illustration because it essentially had a goal that by 2014, which is just next year, basically we would have education utopia where all children would be perfectly literate and everything would be. And the truth, you know, in all schools that didn't achieve this would be essentially shut down, punished and ultimately shut down and reorganized. Everyone realized this was, of course, an escalator to nowhere. It, it, to me, it's like 
setting up a program for a police force in a city, let's say Baltimore, since we talked about Baltimore earlier, with high crime rates and so on, and say, look, we're going to judge the efficacy of your police force on the extent to which crime rates go down, or more nefariously, what they sometimes do, arrest rates, where they do it the other way. They count the number of arrests, and you're supposed to, you're incentivized to make more arrests. But it, it, it was as if we said, crime must be eliminated in Baltimore, say this is the year 2000, by 2014. And every year we're going to give you benchmarks toward that. And if you fail to meet your benchmarks, and ultimately crime is not eliminated in Baltimore by 2014, we're going to shut down the police force. You know, we're going to fire all the police officers because crime has not been eliminated. You know, it's insane, of course. And uh, so this is essentially the program, the wonderful program that both Democrats and Republicans signed on to in the United States, which I, I see as an essentially an eliminationist program, almost obviously in its basic construct, which I see as essentially in a, an attempt to discredit public institutions and then help to make the argument that public schools are all failing. This grand public project of universal education, it's as a public project, it's essentially failed. We need to privatize things through various schemes. And then once things are privatized, they can be sort of picked off one by one and drained of whatever residual capital is left to, you know, fuel the grand financial casino through various mechanisms. And it'll be much easier to simply widen this swath of what Chris Hedges calls dead zones of capitalism. Is there any uh, evidence for the efficacy of these re types of reforms? Or have they failed universally? Um, well, I, I think they have. And I'm, I, I'm in a school of education. A lot of people study this. And what they study are test results. So at best, you get some statements that test results have gone up somewhere. Though even in the, on that limited basis, I think we are lacking evidence. I'd refer anyone to a wonderful brand new book by Diane Ravitch, the American educational historian, called Reign of Error, where she, she very thoroughly documents this process and comes to the conclusion that it's essentially been a giant hoax. So I, you know, my short answer to that is, is no, and even those arguing in favor and the kind of evidence they're producing, which is even more dismal than what economists often produce in, in terms of data, is simply based on test scores. So you really can't even speak of educational improvement. You can only speak of test score rising, which is an, uh, quite another matter, actually. It's, it's strange how important testing is seen in these neoliberal reforms. Like if we look to, say, the best educational systems in the world, like Finland, I don't think they do any formal testing for many, many years. And I don't think they even start to teach them how to read until I think they're seven. Yeah. And they have villainous monsters such as teacher unions there. Yeah. And teachers who have to have master's degrees. Right. It, it seems very, very far removed from the reforms that are brought in in most countries. Yeah. And this is, you know, certainly a strong exhibit, this area of the kind of official ideological rhetoric of, of, of corporate school reform, we might call it, which is kind of the neoliberal push. A grand, you know, case study in ideological obfuscation, you know, and, and ultimately that's actually what I see neo neoliberalism as. I actually don't think maybe this will make me a kind of claim that might make me sound like Slavoj Žižek or something. But I think neoliberalism actually doesn't exist. You know, I think it's best understood as an ideological cover. You know, it's sort of an illusory, illusory process where both economically and in areas like schools and education reform, we have a rhetorical championing of competition, right? 
you know, that the individuals, so we should, and firms and so on, everyone should compete. Where all the while, who's competing? It's people like you and me, right? It's the little people who are subject to the harsh dictates of economic competition on the labor market and school teachers competing to show that they've raised the test scores of their children to keep their jobs and so on. It's the little people who are competing where Ironically, it's the elites who are then consolidated in their power and sort of monopoly positions of sort of rent collecting positions that are precisely characterized by the lack of competitions that they have to experience. So too big to fail banks, you know, and the rest of it. So we have this really, really weird schizophrenic situation where the rhetoric of competition is applied quite selectively, right, to the little people, where the elites are more and more put in these kind of aristocratic guaranteed positions where they're actually subject less and less to competition. I see, you know, we, we have precisely this in education. And in education, I think the competition, which is actually designed for teachers to fail and so on, it has this additional rhetorical feature where um, it justifies the elimination of jobs and the elimination ultimately of the public sector and the elimination of the conception of education as a public good itself, which I think in the United States, at least, is already far, far advanced in higher education, especially. And now in, in England, you've had a, a little taste of it. Well, from our perspective, a little taste with the fees protests and so on, right, where they're raising fees. I happened to be there during some of those protests, and I had a group of American university students in London, and many of my London friends were, you know, involved in those and so on. And when we were trying to explain, uh, an English colleague of mine was trying to explain the crisis to our American students, they claimed it was, what was it, 9,000 pounds or something, the fees were being raised to? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, something like that. And the American students who pay something like triple that, you know, in terms of their fees, we're sort of saying, hey, sounds pretty good to us, <laughs> you know. Um, so it shows you there are contextual differences, obviously, and we're in higher education, though, in the States, we have been far along this road of competition and privatization to where what are called public universities, famous ones like University of California, Berkeley, University of Michigan, where I, I went to University of Illinois, University of Texas, my own University of Delaware, these public institutions, most people would be shocked to learn that these institutions receive only a tiny bit of their funding from the state now. And everything else comes from tuition and private sources. So we've effectively already privatized even the public institutions in the states, though it's, it's all subsidized. There's a systemic hybridization here where the government subsidizes these institutions through student loans and so on, which result in the personal indebtedness of, of graduates. So it's, you know, an interlocking system, what uh, Ms. Aros calls systemic hybridization, right? We see this in education, just as we see it with governments backstopping too big to fail banks. But we're very far advanced already uh, in higher ed uh, along these lines. And I think what's happening in the U.S. is primary and secondary education are starting to experience this. And I do not see this process abating. I think it'll continue. In what way do you think the policies of these increased tuition fees for third level education are policy choices for reasons other than falling profits. Like in what measure are they a way to stifle maybe the radical student tendencies that were around in the 60s and 70s? Well, yeah, that's a great guess. And I'll put on my conspiratorial hat here a little bit. That is a nice ancillary benefit, right? Because the system of educational debt in higher ed especially does two things. One is, well, it's, it's actually maybe three things. One is it personalizes uh, ed education and particularly higher education 
as a private good rather than a public good. Right. Once upon a time, and again, I, I'm not promoting a, a nostalgic view where things were wonderful, but in the United States, at least, we once in the 19th century, at the founding of these of our system of higher education, mass higher education, we had these institutions were known as land grant institutions, and they were very explicitly to be devoted to the public good, you know, and and there was a, there was a higher level of, of of commitment to the idea that, especially in terms of stuff like agricultural technology. That if you promote and diffuse knowledge, a, a Jeffersonian ideal in the states, that that's not just good for the individual who's getting the knowledge, you know, the college student who's getting the degree, but that's good for the society as a whole. You know, we all benefit from it. And the marquee examples would be technological discoveries, you know, from the university scientists and university graduates who are more technically adept. You know, we all benefit from that. And you think of things like uh, agricultural extension offices helping farmers become more productive through all the knowledge they've learned, you know, at the universities and so on. So there was, uh, I think, a more robust conception at the uh, uh, erection of these institutions that education is a public good. Now, with, with debt, and, you know, speaking directly to your question, I think it helps make more introspective, turn that, that conception inward into a private good. So the conception is that higher education is an investment, right? Not in society. But it's a personal investment. So, and it's quite rational to make that decision. You know, if you're thinking about your child going to higher education or yourself, should you take on the debt? Well, it's rational if it's a good investment, right? Like your home mortgage might be, or a car loan, or whatever. Is it a good investment? You know, and then you have to think in terms of the financialized investment because you have to borrow money to do it. And then is the debt worth it? And Universities in the states, at least, will trot out statistics. They're extremely happy to trot out statistics about, oh, a university graduate earns this much more over the lifetime than someone who hasn't been to university and so on. And that's a large part how they justify their existence of why students should burn themselves with debt in order to attend. However, live by the sword, die by the sword, right? Because all of this, whether or not that investment from a personal point of view, whether you know I'm the kid wanting to go to college, Live by the sword, die by the sword, because all that, that game only continues as long as there are jobs for those graduates that are remunerative sufficiently to make the uh, investment make sense. You know, just like in the housing bubble, you know, the Ponzi scheme of housing is only makes sense to the extent that people can keep, you know, refinancing and meeting these mortgage payments. So that's one effect. It, it personalizes. And so it also then aids and fuels the privatization movement because the public at large comes to view education not so much as that old-time public good, that it's just good for me as a farmer out in the middle of nowhere that, that more kids are going to higher education because those benefits were down to me somehow. That conception's kind of gone. The conception is that, is, is that there's an increasingly crabbed conception, a, a lack of a withdrawal of support for higher education from the public in general, and it makes sense, actually. It makes complete sense. Why should I care to contribute to the purely personal investment of this kid going to college when when they graduate, they're the ones who are personally going to reap the rewards, right, in terms of remuneration? I see when they go into finance or if they're an I-League and they go to Wall Street, they're the ones who are going to benefit. What, what benefit is there uh, to me? There's no public good. It, it, you know, it's privatized. So that's one thing. The second thing that I argue is a more, I guess, philosophical point, which is that the debt load that is increasingly incurred restricts the existential possibility of students. 
and ties them into a kind of more almost neo-feudal system of debt servitude where you know they're not tied literally to a land by a lord like in feudal times but what they're tied to are certain a narrowing sector of jobs that make it worth it you know that that they can then pay back the the loans and i'll give you an example of how we all sort of lose i have a, a colleague whose son is in medical school now which is an unbelievably expensive you have to you have to go into debt hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to medical school here and his dream he man, majored in spanish in college and his his dream very idealistic bright kid his I, his dream was to open up a free clinic in a latino area a poor latino you know city area that's that was his dream however with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt and this is someone from an upper middle class family but still he can't pay for that he's simply not going to be able to do that anymore you know he has to go do i don't know plastic surgery in beverly hills or something maybe not that you know but something that is going to be specialized in something that is more serviceable to elites or people who can pay and this ties in of course our healthcare system with our education system being privatized but he has to do something that's more remunerative directly so he can service those loans thereby we all lose because we're not going to have this really good future doctor serving a latino community that needs it you know probably a lot more than the people who are going to need his specialized services but who can pay so that's the second thing is restricting of existential possibilities where we all lose and the third thing is simply the stratospheric debt you know in the states last i think it was last year maybe it was 2 years ago we re- reached a symbolic threshold where education debt passed the trillion dollar mark which actually surpassed personal credit card debt and auto loan debt in the united states so education debt is actually second only now to mortgage loan debt in the US and so the very weight of that looks quite bubbly you know in many respects on a larger scale now one might almost agree with the libertarians in this respect higher education i think has been quite distorted and in many ways bloated in some respects uh, in ways it shouldn't have been it's certainly been distorted by the effects of all this kind of easy money available for students in form of loan cost for but they're taking them on the ideology that they're going to be better off etc cetera, etc cetera. as before mentioned you know just like in the housing crisis those not being able to pay back their loans uh, which they've gotten for various reasons precipitates the housing crisis in many respects i think uh, youth uh, unemployment is probably a good bet you know going to start precipitate a crisis regarding these top heavy education loans which is going to probably be devastating to the higher ed sector in the future here you also mention in the book about the difference between educational debt is that it's not something you can't give back the keys to your to, <laughs> yeah, uh, right. your education you know you can't bankrupt yourself as of yet maybe there like i i mentioned sort of somewhat tongue in cheek where there may be technological developments right where you could um and uh you know where you could uh, they could go in and remove the education experiences from your brain you know you'd have to uh, they'd be repossessed you know uh from you some kind of educational lobotomy right yeah exactly but absent that capability it is what i call an existential debt and that you know it's not securitized by anything but your very existence sort of, right so and since it can't be taken out it's not really securitized at all so it's it's unlike uh, most of the other forms of of debt which it's 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 so only you it's it's it accrues to your person and in the United States the legal developments have been uh, that aid this process have been incredibly pernicious they aid and they reflect this because in in bankruptcy proceedings for example 
you can get rid of credit card debt. You can get rid of mortgage debt. You can get rid of you know all kinds of debt through bank. But the one thing that you definitely can't get rid of under except under maybe some really extraordinary circumstances is education debt. You're really wired in to that debt. So it really does become sort of like a, a debt slavery because there's no ability even to, to, to give it up unless you just kill yourself or something, I guess. This series reveals surgery's evolution from butchery to brilliance. It is a tale of courage and missed opportunity, pathos and bloodshed. I want to start with the surgical assault on that most extraordinary of all our organs. The human brain. Operating on the brain promised to cure not just the body, but the mind. Good Lord. It created challenges which were taken up by some peculiarly obsessive-driven individuals. The operation I witnessed was diabolical. I've had parts of my own brain interfered with. <laughs> and uncovered something that has never been seen before. Inside my head I have a black hole, a black hole, a black hole. Do you think that the US and the UK, their educational policies are so hard on their youth because perhaps they're at the core of the global system and if any kind of revolt was to have a large systemic outcome, it would be at the heart of the system and that that can't be allowed to happen? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's ex that's exactly part of it. That's sort of the political aspect of it, the control aspect of it, because I think that's where instability is to be located, right, in the system, is in the rising generation. And we see dramatic examples of this, not right at the moment. We seem to be in a little bit of a lull, right, but just a couple years ago. Occupy, London riots, Paris, suburbs, uh, Arab Spring, which represents a disproportionately youthful demographic, right, the Arab Spring, and of course, Greece, Spain, you know, etc. These are, I think, are characterized as youthful movements. You know, there are some older hangers on like me, right? But these are characterized by youth. I mean, these are youth movements because I think they see quite clearly that their possibilities are extremely truncated at the moment. And that's where, if you want to look for hope, that's where hope is. Is and it's not just because they're they're better people or they're gonna. It's because they are in a structural situation in which they it's sort of fight or flight, right? There and there's no flight. Maybe they they have no possibility but to revolt. It's sort of faded that that they're going to be restive. What is the end game then for all these educational cuts and rearrangements? What what is the structure of society we have to look forward to? Well, I'm not a futurist, so I'm not going to bite too hard on that question. I think it's not possible to predict in detail. I think that certain institutions are fated toward collapse. I guess I, I'm I'm in that old school of thinking, aided by the falling rate of profit thesis to some extent, that I think we're headed for cataclysms of various kind. Now, I, and I know it's difficult. That puts me in a long tradition of doomsayers. And apocalypticism is extremely, and I, I fully acknowledge that one should be extremely wary and essentially the default position should be distrustful of any millennialist, you know, or apocalyptic uh, pronouncements. One of my favorite statements on that is uh, John Michael Greer has wrote a book called Apocalypse Not, 
which I think is quite amusing. You know, talking about the Mayan, the prophesied Mayan. Remember the Mayan thing, 2012, where he traces apocalyptic millennialist uh, movements throughout history. And one thing he finds is very suggestive. He finds that very suspiciously, the world after the apocalypse that's sort of prophesied by the apocalyptic group bears a very suspicious resemblance to what they want <laughs> you know <laughs> so that like the people who are left like environmental apocalypticists often project well what's going to be left are permaculturists running around doing their delightful communes and you know without fossil fuel and you know christians see the only group that's left are the saved you know aka the people like themselves you know, so I think it's very, very difficult to, there's a lot of psychological projection. And so, well, I find myself doing this, in fact, being self-conscious of this, thanks to Greer and others. You know, when I say, okay, what world comes after? Well, I see it as a world of where the capitalists have fallen and, you know, sort of Wizard of Oz, you know, <laughs> the witch is dead. We all, we all crawl out of the rubble and hold hands and create, you know, communes and, and find authentic existence together. Well, I guess I have to say, unfortunately, that that is probably exactly not what's going to happen. The one thing you can probably only be sure of is that it's not what you want to happen that's going to happen. <laughs> I think maybe that's the only certainty. So I, I guess as far as I can tell, I think, first of all, in my view, we're facing, you might say, three horsemen of the apocalypse <laughs> right now. One is economic collapse. Two is energy descent, various energy descent uh, scenarios having to do with fossil fuel dependency and so on, and the extent to which our industrial capitalist system is dependent on, on that. And alternative energies don't seem promising to really bear the weight that, that they would need to. And then the, th the third thing is climate, you know, climate change or, or severe difficulties, maybe even collapse scenarios generated by climate change. And that's sort of that's the wonderful horse race. I grew up in Kentucky where we have horse racing. That's a that, that's not really a very fun horse race to watch, you know. Which which horse do you want? The economic class? You know, they're all pretty uh, horrible. And the bet right now is that maybe the economic one is the the time horizon is shorter. But they're all obviously quite intertwined. And I think what any future scenario that we would want to envision would depend very much on the outcome of that sort of horrible apocalyptic horse race. And so I think we could spin out different scenarios, and many have. There's a really burgeoning, I think, quite interesting collapse literature out there where there's a lively, interesting debate, not to be confused with lunatic preppers who are storing, hoarding canned goods and firearms in their basement, you know, um, and gold, you know, it's a big thing. There are a lot of very interesting discussions along those lines and with, with different positions on, on, on these issues. And so... I would very much not want to hazard a guess. The one thing I will say about my own area in this book, in education, is I think, and my last chapter outlines this uh, position, I think the educational uh, systems as currently constituted are fated to, to disintegrate because I think any three of those horses pretty much take care of our current educational arrangements, at least especially as we have them here in the States. Um, I think those will, will finish them off as institutions. And the timeline, anybody's guess, could be two years, could be a 50 years. That's hard to know. I was wondering if you could finally say a word about intellectual pessimism and our current situation. My last chapter is entitled Fatalism, Pessimism, and Other Reasons for Hope. I actually defend, and, and part of me, when I'm writing this, I, I kind of have that voice. We talked about it a little bit earlier. I have this voice of the activist who quite reasonably, my heart is with them, 
the activist who wants to ask, okay, well, what do we do about this? Tell me what my agency can perform, you know, against these processes. And, uh, you know, my, my dour sort of uh, doomsday cynical voice wants to say, well, what makes you think you can really? Um, and I think it's, it, we need to really explore that picture. And that's what I try to do in the, in the, in the last chapter. And what I defend is a certain type of fatalism that I think would be actually salutary for us to win back because in some ways, I think this question about agency is not really so innocent. You know, I think it, 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 it partakes of and kind of in a subterranean way, draws inspiration from a certain kind of modern conception of progress, you know, an almost technological or you could say technicist approach to problems that, that sort of a can-do, pragmatic implied philosophy that, well, we can solve these problems, you know, and of course, if you don't buy into that, you're sort of viewed as this crazy pessimist, do-nothing pessimist who wants us all to curl up and die and, and what use are you and so on and so forth. I think that picture isn't so innocent because I think a lot of that can-do technological sort of mentality is actually a, a large part of our problem, especially when we consider the environmental dimension to the problems that we face, the urgent problems that we face. And so I think a couple things. One is, I suggest, more attention to pre-capitalist notions of life, cyclical notions of temporality, fatalism specifically. And, and in the last chapter, I focus on Stoicism, tradition of Stoicism from Rome, ancient Greek and Roman philosophers such as Seneca and others, where Stoicism was characterized by a certain conception of fatalism. Now, it turns out that when you think about fatalism, you can unpack it. There are actually a lot of different types. One type that I think is implausible is maybe the most famous type, and that's the type from Greek mythology itself, where you have the three fates, the so-called mori, and it's where they snip the, you know, the, the string and so on. When it's time for you to die and they kind of control everything, that's a kind of metaphysical conception of, of fate which you find in Calvinism, I think, you know, the notion of predestination. It's all been kind of mapped out and you might as well just uh, sit back and let it happen. Although, it, interestingly enough, it turns out that's not what they do. So even with the hard metaphysical conception of fate, like the Calvinists and the Romans, where paradoxically, these most fatalistic of worldviews in, you know, Western history also are arguably the most activist of worldviews. You know, the Calvinists come Puritans, and it, it takes this interesting, tortuous ideological path where, you know, you have anxiety because you can't know whether you're one of the elect under Calvinism. So therefore, you frantically work hard and ultimately uh, give uh, fuel to capitalism by your frantic working hard, because if you are prosperous, then that's a sign that you're one of the elect. You know, this is Max Weber's thesis. And uh, um, same with the Romans. I don't think anyone would accuse the Roman elite of being quietistic, you know, passive types, right? What I defend is a conception that I call, uh, following philosopher Robert Solomon, a narrative fatalism, which I think can be more selectively applied to certain institutions, perhaps to capitalism itself. But I apply it in this book specifically to educational institutions, where I think it's, it's healthy to understand when to cut your losses, essentially, that certain institutions, because of the basic structural dynamics are fated to run in a certain direction and you're better off not trying to reform them but to think outside of them you know it's almost an advocacy of improved target selection for actors you know and i argue very specifically and this is something that would be controversial perhaps among my colleagues that education reform is a waste of time 
that those institutions are too wired into a certain structural dynamic of capitalism, that reform will inevitably be sucked into a, in, into a certain direction and won't work out. So, so I think it, I advocate a narrative fatalism inspired by ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus, who very famously said in a fragment that character is fate. And there's a certain idea that, <clears throat> that institutions can take on a certain character which sets in motion certain processes where they're kind of, you can be, it can be said that they're faded in a certain way. And I think it's important to recognize that. To take an extreme example to illustrate the point, I, I don't think we would talk about uh, a concentration camp in Nazi Germany, right? I think we would talk about abolishing it because it's simply set up for, for in certain ways and, and certain purposes, and it's not reformable. You need to re realize when it's uh, time to, to, to think outside of that institution and think of demolishing it. So what I, ca I call this compartmentalized pessimism or uh, you know, kind of narrative uh, fatalism, and I advocate that we be more uh, liberal in the small L sense, I guess, of liberal uh, in, in applying this to certain areas and so that we can better concentrate energies where you know, perhaps a difference could be made. Ultimately, I agree with, there's another, which is from Alexander Coburn, who recently passed away, the leftist essayist. Coburn says, and what I think is, is actually his last published sentence, so sort of poignant, he says, I think that the system will collapse, but not from our own volition. And so what I advocate is, I'm calling, I think, opportunism, a, a sort of uh, straightforward, forthright opportunism, pedagogy of opportunism, ultimately where I think not to reform the existing institutions, but actually to prepare psychologically uh, and otherwise for a collapse scenario in which I think uh, certain types of preparation will be very helpful for situations in which uh, of crisis where there will be opportunities. And I think that's where the real change is going to come in these uh, crisis situations. So ultimately, also, I think just as confronting one's own mortality can bring renewed appreciation for what one has in one's life. You know, the mortality of oneself and of loved ones, uh, we often ignore these things, but when they come to the fore, they can have the interesting effect of, of enriching in, a, in an odd way. Even as depressing and scary as they are, they can have the effect of, uh, of enriching our lives and, and helping us prioritize what's actually important and what's not and what's ultimately has meaning and what doesn't have meaning. I think the facing collapse, these three horrible horses that we were mentioning at a collective level can have a kind of collective pedagogical effect of uh, hopefully as in, in helping us actually stare down our mortality and not be as distracted by entertainments and bread and circuses and so on and acquisitiveness and, and all this and, and the looming threat, these actually very real threats could have potentially a sal salutary effect of helping us collectively prioritize uh, what actually is meaningful to us at a collective level, just as, you know, that brush with the personal mortality can do that at a personal level. So that's, that's where my hope is. And I close with the good old image of Pandora. You know, the last, the last thing is hope, but interestingly, you have to lose everything before you get hope. So it's kind of an interesting paradox for us to contemplate, I would suggest. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show today, David. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures, by Sun Ra and his orchestra, the theoretical physicist, Michio Kaku, talking about free will and determinism, accompanied by John Coltrane's A Love Supreme, and the introduction from the BBC documentary, Blood and Guts, A History of Surgery. In honour of the passing of the good man Nelson Mandela, you are now listening to Eddie Grant's Gimme Hope Joanna. Thanks for listening. Have a great Christmas. And do join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. <laughs>